You're listening to Reddit Gold Radio. I'm your host, and as always, we are curating and narrating the finest Reddit has to offer on this lovely, breezy fall day. I'm your hostess. It is Thursday, October 19th, and I'm here to remind you to join our new email list. You'll get an email each time we release a new show, so you'll never miss a broadcast and never grow to miss the sound of our voices. I'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you for your cooperation. For now, I'll get us started with a post about artificial intelligence grappling with morality. This post was submitted to Futurology by J.X. Tian. Artificial intelligence researchers taught an AI to decide who a self-driving car should kill by feeding it millions of human survey responses. The top comment is by Empty Headed Art, who says, I think I did one of these surveys, and one of the questions was whether the cars should swerve into a wall, killing its passengers, to avoid colliding into a pedestrian who had suddenly stepped into the path of the car, or continue on its path to kill the pedestrian when there was no way to stop in time. I chose continue on to kill the pedestrian because otherwise people could abuse the system and kill people by intentionally stepping into roads and causing self-driving cars to swerve into accidents. Huh. Yeah, right? Paradise Found says, I also think I took this survey. My process was to make choices where, one, no one was killed if possible, two, if someone had to be killed, it was the person who had made the most significant choice in causing the accident, three, if no one had made a choice contributing to the accident, the car deviated from standard behavior as little as possible, giving humans the opportunity to react and save their lives without making a choice they wouldn't expect. So, for example, not swerving so that the humans who could observe themselves in the path of the car could get out of that path and not simply move into the new path of the car as it swerves. Cthulhu Swamp says, I'm sorry, it's Cthulhu Womp. Cthulhu Womp says, I took this survey and decided to kill as many people as possible. (laughs) Thank you for your contribution, Cthulhu Womp. (laughs) There's a ghost in the machine. (laughs) I ush Qwiush says, I also chose this option, but we were in the minority. I'm sorry, they're responding not to Cthulhu Womp. They're responding to the person who decided to hit the pedestrian. I also chose this option, but we were in the minority, which is hilarious because almost none of the people who picked crash into wall and kill the passenger would purchase a self-driving car programmed like this. Hello, I have two cars available for purchase. One will make your life the priority and will follow the rules of the road perfectly. The other will put an arbitrary value on the lives of strangers, and if their value exceeds yours, it will sacrifice you to save them. Which one would you like to purchase? (laughs) I've noticed that utilitarianism as a philosophy gets a whole lot less popular in practice than it is in theory. Helpful Guy says, Radiolab just did a really good podcast about the results from several of these surveys. It's interesting because almost universally people would say, obviously save the pedestrians. But later, when people were asked if they would buy a car that would make a decision to put their life in danger to save someone else, nearly everyone gave a resounding no. So what the hell do you do then? Everyone likes to pretend they would be wholesome and save the other guy, but in the end, no one would actually buy a car that makes that decision. I think if the car is hypothetically 100% capable of following every rule when driving, it will statistically never be at fault in an accident where it's functioning correctly. Then it should absolutely prioritize its driver's safety over the pedestrians. Would it suck to see five pedestrians killed in self-driving car accident? Absolutely. But if those five people riskily ran out into the road when they shouldn't have, and they accepted the risk in doing that, it's absolutely wrong for the car to kill the driver to attempt to save them. The way I heard it put by an automaker that sort of makes the most sense from a realistic point of view is, 
If you can 100% guarantee that you save a life, let it be the driver, i.e. in the car versus pedestrian scenario, it would err on the side of the driver hitting the pedestrians. Kilmere says, I agree with this sentiment. Self-driving cars I basically see as trains, only not following tracks but the rules of the road. You step on the track of a train and you get hit, it's your fault. You jaywalk and get hit by a self-driving car, your fault. The self-driving cars will be safer in such scenarios overall as they anticipate and detect dangerous situations. They can slow down or brake faster, etc., but it shouldn't ever risk the driver because of other people being stupid. A game developer says, If you ever see the movie Logan, there is a scene where they deal with self-driving trucks. Some horses escape on the highway, and people were able to navigate around the vehicles precisely because they acted like trains. Had the scene be re been redone with human drivers, there would have been many deaths and a lot of crashed trucks. Nathan Explosion 22 says, oh, The headline of this article makes it sound like they're training cars to assassinate people based on popular vote. <laughs> Avelek JF says, the writers of Black Mirror approve. <laughs> RTY Not says, I'm going to have to load the car with baby seats and baby mannequins. Busset Goodpet says, and pregnant women mannequins, so the AI always in favor of you and kill everybody else. <laughs> Flash himself says, how many accidents are you planning to have exactly? <laughs> Goat of Thrones says, if it had a choice between killing a financially stable person or killing a homeless person, it would kill the homeless person. Are we sure this AI isn't running Congress? <laughs> Kubrick is my co-pilot says, great, morality by committee and mob consensus. That never goes wrong. And finally, Rexay is a lady says, if it found trolley memes, it's going to multi-track drift us all to death. <sighs> <laughs> yes, trolley memes. I, I included that just memes. for you, Mr. Host. Ah, oh, thank you so much. All right, you have concerns about the future in your thread. My concerns are primarily to deal with the past. This is a submission by Int Jizzle Fosho, who asks, which Bible quote would be improved by adding comma bitch? Oh, Christy no. Crow says, Luke thirteen twenty five. After the master of the house gets up and shuts the door. You will stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I do not know where you are from, bitch. <laughs> Eating Kids Daily says, All of Job 38, in which God is telling Job how small he is. But here's just the first few verses. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me, bitch. <laughs> User Butt Putnam says, Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, bitch? No. <laughs> Metaphors. Dr. Pepper PhD says, bitch, I thirst. John 1928. User P. Mer SSN gives him Reddit frankincense. <laughs> not quite as good as Reddit gold, but close. Um, I actually have my own submission for this. I was a little bit late to the thread. But it, my favorite submission for this is 2 Kings 9.22. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And Jehu answered, What peace? 
so long as the harlotries and witchcrafts of your mother Jezebel are so many, bitch. <laughs> I knew that you would find some way to insert your own favorite Bible quote. This is my into favorite this Bible thread. quote. It is, the, it is the best. It is the original your mother joke. I mean, it's a piece of history. How could I not? A piece of history, indeed. <laughs> my next post is by Happy Factor, submitted to Ask Reddit. Teachers of Reddit, what's the most creative way you've ever seen a student cheat? Pikachu on crack, which, wow, that's a great username. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> At the university where I used to study, the court transcripts of every academic major offense is made available to the public. While I was bored in class, I went through a lot of these. This was a pre-Reddit Facebook era. Best one I found, there was a guy maintaining three serious relationships with three different girls. Those three girls were covering one to two courses each. They would write essays, exams, attend lectures, attend tutorials, etc. on his behalf. He would tell each of his girlfriends that he was under a lot of stress, and he would have more time to dedicate to the relationship if they could help him out. After almost the bulk of his education was completed, this guy literally almost fucking got a degree, two of the girls finally found out and eventually discovered the third girl, and all three girls disclosed the extent of the cheating, suffering academic penalties themselves, in court. The guy was expelled and had all his credits turned over, but damn, I can only imagine how much dedication he put into the scheme. Jesus. Taking cheating to the next level, eh? <laughs> cheating in every way possible. Uh, another one is by Charmed is the One, who says, When I taught fifth grade, I caught one of the kids trying to teach his friends alphabet sign language. He learned it from his high school-aged sister, who apparently used it with all of her friends during exams. I thought it was clever and encouraged the kids to learn it, but I was a little more careful of seating placement during the couple of multiple-choice quizzes they did that semester. Mr. Fluke says, About ten years ago, during a final exam, I noticed an LED board attached to the wall was scrolling math formulas. Students had installed the banner board under the actual scoreboard in the gym. Even though it was large, you could barely see it. The only reason I was able to notice it was because I was walking around squinting. I left my glasses in my office. The board was very dim, but when you squinted, the numbers symbols just jumped out. We never officially caught the person that installed it. The entire class had to redo a four-hour exam. Oh my god. Isn't that incredible? That's, that's genius. Awesome. I, I don't understand why they penalize them for that. If anything, that's better than learning how to take a test well. <laughs> but for standardized tests, I would imagine. I understand. To retake it. Blowhole Burns says, Not a teacher, but a guy I went to uni with didn't finish his essay on time, so he stapled seven blank pages to the back of the two actual pages he'd managed to write so far and handed that in. He then went to the library that afternoon, smashed out the rest of the essay, waited until the department had closed for the evening, broke back into the office and filing cabinet, found his essay, and replaced the blank pages with the finished one. Got away with it, too, the clever git. That's fucking amazing. There is no That's way... That's so hard. There's no way that took less effort than just writing the essay in a timely fashion. What, what the hell? Incredible. I really love this one. Blag49 says, When I was in grade 8, we had a math test on Halloween. I went to school as a cardboard box and wrote a whole bunch of notes and formulas on the inside. <laughs> My plan was to turtle when the teacher wasn't looking, and it worked like a charm. Also won the classroom costume contest. <laughs> Canada Best Clay says, snake? Mental Sewage says, snake? Rand Salter says, snake! Snake eater! <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my god. I thought that was incredible. Your turn. All right. Um, my next post is from 
Ask Reddit, and it's by 2828 Questions, and it's, what's the weirdest history fact that you know? Ooh. Detective Jake Peralta says, that's a very official name, when FDR died in office, the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb, was so secret that his vice president didn't even know about it, and upon taking oath, Truman had to be briefed on the existence of the bomb. Whoa. Uh, user Wool Vowel chimes in, to be fair, up to that point, the vice president was really just something to help the president get elected, and was an almost pointless job. The reason Teddy Roosevelt was made vice president was because the businessmen supporting McKinley wanted him to disappear, because that was what happened back then to political careers. Truman changed that and brought the VP into the fold because of things like the Manhattan Project being kept from him. Insert some name says, Teddy Roosevelt's vice presidency always gets me. Anti-Roosevelt, Republican businessman. This Roosevelt guy is a fucking pain here in New York. Let's just get him appointed to a high-level but pointless position like VP. Surely President McKinley won't die. Fuck. Oh. Oh, backfire. Uh, user They Got the Mustard Out says, When Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were beheaded, it is said that people dipped handkerchiefs in their blood to keep as souvenirs. What? In 2011, a group of scientists confirmed that a blood-stained handkerchief dated from approximately 1793, was soaked in the blood of Louis XVI. User Deranged Desperado said, Souvenirs from executions were not uncommon. Uh. User Jason Yaya says, I have a cool collection of snow globes. <laughs> oh, thank you for your contribution. <laughs> what? How many executions has he attended? And are there, like, vendors who sell these snow globes? <laughs> User Portarosa says, In 1906, at the 37th Annual Conference of German Psychiatrists, Aloe Alzheimer presented a paper that outlined the symptoms of the disease that would later come to be named after him. The discovery was one of the most important in the field of neuroscience. It was, to put it mildly, not a great success. The headline act, or at least the guy who followed Alzheimer, was presenting a paper on the topic of compulsive masturbation. Oh, no! Which people were so <laughs> eager to hear that not a single follow-up question to Alzheimer's speech was asked, nor a single comment recorded. User Swell Fellow says, I wonder how many people in that crowd will later develop Alzheimer's. Ooh. It's all about the fapping, man. <laughs> User Lister, Bubble, Lister Bibble says, Oliver Cromwell banned the eating of pie in 1644, <laughs> declaring it a pagan form of pleasure. <laughs> For 16 years, pie eating and making went underground until the restoration leaders lifted the ban on pie in 1660. There were, like, pie crime syndicates, right? <laughs> Where they're, like, pie, pie speakeasies, like, <laughs> underground, underground. Right? Pie organized crime. User Nox Aeternum says, Am pagan. Love pie. Can confirm. <laughs> User Sneaky Fock says, In 1919, there was a molasses flood in Boston that killed 21 people and injured 150. And he links to the Great Molasses Flood Wikipedia page. User Phantom Mantis says, the Boston Molassacre. Oh my god. When I first heard about that, I did not think that it was was real. I It's real. Oh yes. The molasses event is true. We learned about it in school. Yeah, well I learned about it in college. Like I feel like if I hadn't gone to Massachusetts to yeah, for college, I, mean, I would someone, never have heard of this. I was born in but Massachusetts. It was, it was How burned. How many people into our were injured? Uh, one hundred and fifty. Over one hundred and fifty. In That's addition insane. to those that died. So yeah. User Citation XN7V11C says, After the first aircraft crashes, no one knew who was legally at fault, as the invention was brand new. 
After great deliberation, it was decided an airplane was technically a vessel, and thus fell under nautical law. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. So the basis for all aircraft regulations originate from naval customs and law. As a bonus, this almost happened to automobiles as well. User Dracon Pyrothean says, The marathon at the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis. The first place finisher did most of the race in a car. He had intended to drop out and got a car back to the stadium to get his change of clothes, and just kind of started jogging when he heard the fanfare. Oh no. The second place finisher was carried across the finish line, legs technically twitching by his trainers. They had been refusing him water and giving him a mixture of brandy and rat poison for the entire race. Why? (laughs) Rat poison? Doping wasn't illegal yet, and this was a terrible attempt at it, so he got the gold when the first guy was revealed. The third finisher was unremarkable, somehow. Fourth finisher was a Cuban mailman who had raised the funds to attend the Olympics by running nonstop around his entire country. He landed in New Orleans and probably lost all of the traveling money on a riverboat casino. He ran the race in dress shoes and long trousers, cut off at the knee by a fellow competitor with a knife. Wait, like purposefully? Or did a fellow competitor just... Like, did he want the competitor to cut off his there, trousers? There may have been a knife. So, a so knife fight. Where is... Dracon does not elaborate here. There may have been a knife fight. I imagine that competitor was helping him out, but we're going to just go okay. with the fact there was a knife fight. Good. He probably would have come in first, or well, second behind the car, had it not been for the hour nap he took on the side of the track after eating rotten apples he found on the side of the race. <laughs> the ninth and 12th finishers were from South Africa and ran barefoot. South Africa didn't actually send a delegation. These were students who just happened to be in town and thought it sounded fun. (laughs) Ninth was chased a mile off course by angry dogs. Yep. Half the participants had never raced competitively before. Some died. What? St. Louis had only one water stop on the entire run. This, coupled with the dusty road and exacerbated by the cars kicking up dust, led to the above fatalities. And yet, somehow, rat poison guy survived to get the gold. The Russian delegation arrived a week late because they were still using the Julian calendar in 1904. That's hysterical. Seriously, this needs to be a movie. This is more hilarious than the fact that you need to be more specific about the time that someone was chucked out of a window in Prague leading to a continental war. Twice. The famous ones of the second defenestration of Prague. I love that word, defenestration. The next post is by Mindduck88. A British ship rammed into a much larger German ship during World War II. The captain of the British ship later won the highest honor award because the captain of the German ship sent a letter to the queen nominating him. That's the end of the thread, and that's beautiful. I love it. (laughs) My next one is by Zergblush9, who submitted to Ask Science, how much of sleep is actual maintenance downtime and how much is just time-killing energy conservation? The idea of science developing a means of reducing sleep to pure function or increasing the efficiency thereof is fascinating to me. My understanding of sleep in animals is that some maintenance is performed by the mind and body, but animals also sleep to conserve energy during unfavorable periods of time, be it yearly hibernation cycles or evolved specialization to periods of the night and day cycle. Legend 8804 is top comment with, The problem here, as far as I'm aware, is that we're still not entirely sure what sleep is for. It's noted that it has a lot of very unique benefits and is essential to our health and well-being, but this question is made even more complicated when you consider that we've recently discovered that even brainless creatures have need of sleep. Needless to say, this is going to be a very important avenue of research, because why would a brainless creature need to sleep? 
why would its cognitive ability be impaired if it has no brain to speak of? This is one of those magical areas where science doesn't quite have all of the answers just yet. Leonra28 says, I'm sorry if this is a stupid question, but since we know that sleeping repairs muscles, helps memories, etc., why do we say we're not sure what it is for? Isn't it for all of those things? Surely the body needs to be in a state of sleep to make sure these processes run without interruption. If you're awake, how will the muscle repair begin if your body is not sure whether you will start using them again? Death Wedgie says, I think the question is why you have to lose consciousness for these processes to take place. When it comes to muscle repair, or bodily maintenance in general, all the processes that cause that to happen happen whether or not you lose consciousness. My suspicion is that it does directly have to do with memory formation or mental processes in general, because it is, after all, the mind that has to shut down for it to do whatever it's doing. The body doesn't need unconsciousness to repair and maintain. Dr. Proctor then says, The brain also does a lot of processing while we sleep. That couldn't really be done while we're conscious, because you're basically be dreaming while awake, which could be very dangerous. Legend 8804 says, Take the case of the jellyfish I linked above again. They have no real muscles to speak of, nor do they have a brain. They are one of the simplest life forms out there. They are literally just a central nervous system with a physical body. You would think they wouldn't need to sleep at all. They have no need to retain memories, and I have my doubts that they damage themselves too much simply by moving around. So if they don't need to repair their muscles, nor to retain memories, because they, again, have no brain, then why in the world do they have to sleep? As user Death Wedgie mentioned, why do we lose consciousness? But in the case of jellyfish, it goes a little beyond that. What is it that causes them to react slowly when they haven't slept? Why does a lack of sleep affect something that has no brain like it would with those who do? In short, we understand the benefits of sleeping, but not the root cause of it. Leonra28 says, that's a very good point. Maybe the central nervous system is the reason we need sleep. The jellyfish example serves as an eliminator for brain muscles memories needing sleep, one could assume. Crocowile replies to the original post with, Virtually every question on sleep should be answered with nobody knows. This is one of those. Keep in mind that some mammals, like horses, sleep three hours a day, while others, like bats, sleep 21 hours a day. Your question will most likely have different answers depending on the animal we're talking about. Seishi says, I'm kind of a good example of this since I have narcolepsy, officially diagnosed early 30s. It's typically understood that the non-REM light sleep cycles are the restorative part of the night's sleep. REM sleep is supposedly the cataloging process of recent past data for what I assume is memory-based mental acuity. However, from the research I've done, there's not a tie to shorter life expectancy for those with narcolepsy. This was extremely surprising to me, as my daily narcolepsy symptoms make me feel like I'm dying. It may be that even that low percentage of restorative sleep that I get is enough to appease the brain or body, or that those with my condition have an adapted biology to cope with vastly different brain activity while asleep. Fun fact! Most people enter REM sleep 90 minutes after falling asleep. I did it 90 seconds during my multiple sleep latency test, MSLT, which is why I can hit snooze on my alarm if I'm having a pleasant dream and want to go back in. Crocowile then says, Yes, good point. Actually, my current line of research is to try and dissociate the perception of sleep need with the actual sleep need. The main example I offer in talks is to food. There's a certain amount of calories we absolutely need, around 2,000 a day, then there are calories that are beneficial under certain circumstances, and then there are calories that some of us crave but are totally unnecessary, in fact, detrimental. My lab's current working hypothesis is that it is the same for sleep. Huh. I thought that was a really interesting thread, and so we, crave, we might be craving more sleep than we actually need as humans. I thought it was interesting, and it makes sense because like I like to sleep for like 
nine to 10 hours. Whereas I know human adults that sleep seven hours and are perfectly capable beings. Agreed. That's interesting. Huh. Here we go. My next post is from the user xscarfacex on writing prompts. The prompt is, write a story with no characters. Interesting. This submission is from Safety Jam. The light of the new sun spreads slowly over the towering gray husks, revealing and heating each tiny speck of dust and dirt. Through the grime-encrusted streets, dead leaves blew, though there was no sound. Spindly metal poles rose at sharp angles all across the landscape, their lights formerly cycling endlessly, red, yellow, green, red, yellow, green, now dark and signifying nothing. Ten thousand cars filled the road, bumper to bumper, but there was no rumble of engines or honking of horns, no hustle or bustle or movement of any kind. High, high above, a tiny speck in the sky fell silently, graceful, and yet with great calamity, ready to impact the earth and deliver a blow so severe it would scar the ground itself and scatter great danger for miles in every direction. Far, far in the distance, great clouds of smoke billow and gather on the horizon, ready to dim the light that still struggled to break through each day. The water had started slowly, as a trickle, emerging timidly from the storm drains and the sewer grates, but as it wound through the natural slopes and crevices, it grew stronger and bolder, and soon it was gushing through alleys and lanes, picking up bicycles and rotting piles of garbage and empty strollers alike, and bringing them all together again into one great swirling vortex of progress and achievement. As the waters met the fires, a great and soundless battle took place. The desperate transformation of heat and energy, a great gray fog, thick as wool, oozing and sliding over the dead brown fields, hiding everything that wasn't already buried, drowned, or burned. As whole cities were swallowed up by the waters from above and below, an observer was desperately needed. Nothing was for certain. There was no proof that anything was in its right place, or even anything at all. Soon, along with no sound, there was no motion, no transfer, no transformation. Soon, for want of an observer, there was nothing. No color could be determined, for no wavelength could be seen. No sound was transmitted, as all vibrations reached and reached and reached and finally petered out, desperately shaking the last molecules before finally collapsing and surrendering to the nothing. Without a sound or sight or smell or pull of gravity, the world was not. It was as it was before, when it was not nothing, but before nothing. Without an end, the light of the new sun spread slowly over the towering gray husks, revealing and heating each tiny speck of dust and dirt. That was lovely. I thought it was really good. Because you think about your place in the universe as an observer. Mm -hmm. The other one I absolutely loved was by Jim Bob Bobaba, who's a much better writer than his name would suggest. <laughs> Quiet. The wind blows softly between the ruined buildings, dust swirling as it eddies in doorways, missing doors and windows missing glass. The echoes of no birds singing in the trees and no children playing in the fields could be heard in the stillness while the wind dances and pirouettes among the ruin. Quiet. Once in a while, a shingle would work loose and fall to the ground, a shard of glass dropped from a rotting frame, 
the shotgun snap of a pavement as it cracks in the cold and the heat, as summer turns to winter, and winter into spring, and spring again into summer. Quiet, the shuffling of the dead as they stiffen, then thaw, then liquefy in the heat of the debris-strewn streets, in the cool of their cellars, in the safety of their dens, and their closets, and beneath their desks. Bordered talismans against the death they were certain could never find them in the places they believed would keep them safe. Where they lie, still, while the wind covers them gently in its soft blanket of earth, and a gossamer kiss as the seasons turn, and turn, and turn, in the never-ending quiet. I love how both of those that you just read are so apocalyptic. It's like we're channeling Cormac McCarthy from The Road. They did a really good hmm. job of the bleakness and the emptiness. This is fantastic. Or the, um, there will come soft. There will come soft rains. There we yeah, go. The short yeah, story. that short mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Similar. All right, on a different note, uh, Laser Beam's Cattle Prod submitted Bartenders and Bouncers. How accurately can you predict a patron's night will turn out? Can you spot who's going to start a fight? Get lucky, strike out, barf, etc. Were you ever way off? Major Mustard is first comment with, You can usually spot who's going to drink too much, who's there to get laid, and who's going to make a fool of themselves. I'm usually pretty good at picking out who memorable people are going to be, but one time I was way off. This slightly overweight office worker in his late 30s comes stumbling into the college bar I was working at around midnight on a Friday. Just about everyone else there is a college student, and by the way he was wobbling, I guessed he was wasted and looking to pick up a college girl. So I decided to keep an eye on him and make sure he didn't get too creepy or aggressive. Holy fuck was I wrong. Over the next two hours, he worked his way through just about every group in the bar, bringing drinks with him and making friends with everybody. He talked to the people playing pool, the kids standing awkwardly off to the sides, the groups of girls out for the night, all while being as friendly and genuine as possible. It was really something to watch. At bar close, when he comes to settle up his tab, which was almost 200 bucks, I asked him where he was from and what he was doing. He explained that he had attended our university in his youth, and whenever he felt like he was drowning in how mundane his life had become, he would come back and prove that he was still the same fun guy he was in college. I didn't see him again for the rest of my year working there, but I often wonder how he's doing. That was such a happy ending. I know. started. <laughs> like, on one hand, like, it's... It's sad that he feels the need to do this, but mm. I love that he follows that instinct and, I don't know, gives back. He makes the world a better place. Mm. Hero in Unicorn says, I'm a bouncer. You can tell who's aggressive when you greet them and ask how their night is when you ID them. Either they will have a positive response or just a standard response, or they are an asshole when they respond dickishly. I once had a guy come in, biggest douchebag I'd ever seen. Drove an Audi, obviously well off, very built. I asked for his ID and he said, really? And shook his head. Instantly, I knew he was a cunt. Or so I thought. He got drunk, then was buying the whole bar rounds, was really happy, dancing, being overly touchy with everyone, not in a creepy way, just in a good time kind of way. Tried to slip me a hundred dollars, and I told him no. He just said, what about a hug? Of course. To this day, I have not seen someone who is an asshole sober become a good guy drunk. That's the total opposite of what I was expecting. Isn't it adorable? This, this thread is making me want to be a bouncer. <laughs> Next thread is by Seti Alpha 6 who says, As a bartender, I love to pick out a single person who is here especially early. One that I know will be here over the long haul and gets especially trashed. 
He gets there in daylight, alone, sits with two seats between the nearest person, guy or girl, seldom looks up from his phone. He's typing on Reddit. I dim the lights according to his drunkness, and he starts to wobble back and forth to what he thinks is the beat of the music I'm playing. Then he passively pays and slinks off into the night. Who knows what becomes of him? Tiff's well. Ragnar Rodiko says, I used to be that guy. He's single, probably just moved into the area. Either lives alone or lives with roommates who don't socialize. He's just lonely and not sure what to do with himself at night, so he goes to the bar and drinks. Talk to him, please. He's most likely a decent guy in need of some conversation. Hmm. Well, I know. Westrocks11 says, This is so true. I'm that girl right now that moved to a new area with no friends and not sure what to do with myself. I'm usually too awkward to strike up conversations at a bar and wish people would talk to me. It's even worse in your early 30s because you're getting to the point where younger people think you're too old, but people your age are married with kids and aren't out at the bars. Uh, yeah. I thought this was, like, sad but also very true and realistic. So, people, when you see these people, reach out. Twice Nightly says... You do build up an eye for people, but it's rare to be 100% accurate. There are signs to look for, typically as people are drinking or interacting with you, rather than when they just walk in. Someone that orders a second drink within 10 minutes of the first is probably going to get drunk. Someone that stands there and chats with you for a few minutes probably isn't going to get super drunk. The guy that comes in alone and starts immediately eyeing up women from the corner is likely going to talk to every girl he sees until he finally gets one to go home with him. The girl that comes in with a bachelorette party that isn't dressed up in pink with penises everywhere is probably the only single stable person of the bunch. Yeah, married women will go fucking nuts at a bachelorette hen party. People that wear hats indoors are 90% more likely to start or be in a fight. They are also 90% more likely to use the term slut or cunt when talking about women. I hate people who wear hats. <laughs> Unless they're like sun hats or safari hats. I was about hats. to say, we wear sun hats all the time you talking about i'm talking about like baseball, baseball hats? hats oh god this is never you're a good alienating sign. our audience i'm sorry. sorry to those who wear hats but guzzles says i wear a hat indoors sad face i don't start fights <laughs> imp 0924 says it's not too late to start start a fight tonight <laughs> good attitude don't let your dreams be dreams <laughs> swell fellow says even the guys in fedoras carnivorous jesus says Madorman. <laughs> Generic Sylvian says, those guys don't leave home. <laughs> their, oh, fight, no. their fights are on the internet. <laughs> that was the end of mine. You go. Fantastic. Um, my last one today is by Hypnotic Brick, who asks, how did you get rid of being awkward? Ooh. User Velgrant posts, there are some good answers here, but most of them have to do with faking confidence until it comes naturally. That is good advice if you are worried about personally feeling awkward. But feeling awkward and being awkward are two different things. Awkward really means causing embarrassment or difficulty. Confidence in yourself can help to recognize that you are not causing people embarrassment, but there's a chance you actually are. I have known a few very confident people who are super awkward to be around. I think the main tactic I've learned to stop being awkward is to read the vibe in a situation and conform your behavior to that vibe. A lot of people are awkward because they feel like they have to act in a certain way to be themselves, despite being in situations that demand a certain pattern of behavior. I am a quiet person, so even though I am with someone that wants to get to know me, I will never talk. I'm the funny guy, so I will always deflect any serious topics even when people need me to empathize with a problem. 
I am not a rude person. I will never make jokes about sex or butts, even when I agreed to play Cards Against Humanity. <laughs> Disney movies and children's shows always try to say, be yourself, with some implication that you have to be a stock set of traits. But in reality, the healthy way to be yourself involves changing your behavior to fit the situation you are in. Hmm. It hurts you and everyone around you if you can't both be professional in a meeting and relax at a bar. You are a person, not a character. Match the mood and no one will ever be embarrassed of you. TLDR, if you don't want to be a real-life Michael Sarah, recognize that acting differently in different situations is a good thing, not a bad thing. User Daltoshi summarizes, You have no obligation to be the kind of person you were five minutes ago, let alone three weeks ago. Learn and grow. It's what human brains are built to do. Hmm. Past you is dead. Indeed, indeed. And this ends the ninth episode of Reddit Gold Radio. We had no user submissions this week. It's up to you to change that for next week. Send us a post or thread you think should be featured on the show and win glory. (laughs) Don't forget to join the new email list so that you never miss a broadcast. And one more announcement. In less than two weeks, Halloween will be upon us. To celebrate, we're recording a super spooky exclusive extra episode only for those who support the show on Patreon. Just $3 will gain you access to the episode, any future specialty shows, and we'll give you a shout out here on Reddit Gold Radio. As always, all links are in the show notes. I'm your hostess. Tune in next time. And I'm your host. Good night and good luck.